Hey folks, this podcast goes beyond the saddle as we explore professional careers across the equine industry. I'm your host, Katie Kleinbell. Let's tack up and head out. Hello everyone and Happy New Year! To kick off 2020 with a bang, we have a special two-part interview with Emma Ford, a world-class groom and Philip Dutton's barn manager. Episode 7 details Emma's journey, education, and experience, while in Episode 8, we'll find out Emma's best advice and her most memorable moments throughout her career. Without further ado, here's Part 1 with Emma Ford. Emma Ford originated from North Devon, England, and was brought up in the hunt field with her dad as Master of the Foxhounds. Emma was raised surrounded by horses. She grew up in the Pony Club system, receiving her B designation and culminating with jumping at the Horse of the Year show in 1991. After completing her baccalaureate of science at the University of Wales, she moved to the United States to follow her passion with horses. After managing Adrian Iorio's advanced event horses for seven years in Boston, Massachusetts, she moved on to manage Philip Dutton's barn in Westgrove, Pennsylvania. She has groomed at almost every four-star event in the world and has been a member of the U.S. eventing team at multiple Olympic, World, and Pan American Games. Throughout the years, in addition to eventing, Emma has had the opportunity to turn horses out at many upper-level show jumping competitions, including the Winter Equestrian Festival in Wellington, Florida, as well as work for a promising young dressage rider at many upper-level dressage shows. Today, we are so lucky to have Emma Ford on the podcast, and we can't wait to hear all of the great things that she has to share with us. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emma. Uh, not a problem, Katie. I'm glad to be um, on, on the show. Well, let's jump right in. I'd love to have you share what it is that you do. What is your job in the equine industry, Emma? Um, well, I am a, a three-day event groom um, and barn manager. I have worked for Philip Dutton for uh, 15 years, since 2005, um, as his head girl. And um, basically, we've had a barn um, of primarily competition horses. Right now, we're at about 27. And when I first started there, we used to be up to like 45, 50 horses. But um, as the years have gone on, he, I think we've both slowed down. So um, now we're, da- we're trying to keep the numbers below 30, which is a good thing. But um, my job basically consists of keeping the horses happy, keeping Philip informed of what's going on, health management-wise, so he can make um, decisions on their training and what needs to happen veterinary care-wise. And then I have about seven staff um, that I work with, and I'm the one that tries to keep the day running efficiently and making sure everything gets done to um, the best way possible. But hopefully we're not there till midnight. <laughs> I can imagine that those days get get pretty hectic, especially when you're saying 45 horses are up to that. That's a huge number. That's a lot of responsibility. Yes, I I do wonder. It's funny, isn't it, how the years go on? Like when I, you know, we used to do it all the time, and then um, now we, you know, even though we're sort of down 15 to 20 horses, I'm like, how how on earth did we do it back then? <laughs> Yeah, I don't have an answer for you. I'm like, we just got it done. So, but I'm, I'm glad we have fewer horses. I think I might, I, I'd probably get to spend more time with each individual horse, which is what I enjoy about my job. So. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure you get to know them pretty well, right? Each of those horses, which is how you can keep Philip or who, whomever informed on where they're at and how they're feeling and what they need. 
yes, I try and pride myself on just knowing, you know, every horse's what I like to call normal, abnormal behavior. You know, it's very important as, as to whether how they stand in a stall or are they horses that are very interactive normally during the day. Um, you know, every small detail can help us, um, you know, navigate the way through training and getting them to peak fitness and peak, you know, competition. Because um, obviously with eventing, we're always aimed primarily at two, you know, we have a top competition in the spring and then um, a top competition in the fall, hopefully. So everything is geared towards those two, you know, competitions and having them peak at those competitions. So it's very important to know, you know, what works for one horse might not necessarily work for another horse. I like to think I know, I know the difference between what they need, but, <laughs> you know, it can be difficult with that number of horses sometimes. They're also different for sure. Can you give us just a typical day in your life? Um, so maybe just a day at the barn and then maybe what a typical day would be like if, when you're on the road. Day to day, that's the one thing with eventing, like every day, what I really love about it is every day is um, different because obviously the horses are cross training. So exercise wise, the horses might be galloping or they might be jumping or they might be doing both or they might be doing flat work. Um, so, you know, that's, it always keeps every day as entertaining and you have to stay very flexible in knowing what or not knowing as the case may be what's going to happen next um but typically we start around 6 7 feed the horses um i come in and you know my first is to go to his top horses and um if they're inside at the time then check their legs and you know make sure everything what i consider to be normal is normal um that might be their water intake hay intake feed intake how messy they were in their stalls at night and then everybody sort of um we're very much in a routine we've got a lot of horses that go out at night so they come in and then the day horses go out um and then Philip is normally in the barn by 8, 8.30, and we have a training log, and that log gets written up of who's going to ride what horse each day and what their work is for that day. So um, I normally have some staff that will clean the barn. Um, I have, you know, there's two of us that are in charge of feed, and we get the grain fed. Um, and then if we have any horses on re rehabilitation, then I, I'll be doing that in the morning and hand grazing. And then we just start the day riding. You know, I will say when we obviously have to get through a lot of horses. So on days that aren't lessons or we're going somewhere, someone else is going to see the horses. The horses will only get a quick groom to go out and work. But then in the afternoon, that's when I spend most of my time with them and they get thorough grooming and hands on, you know, just going over their bodies and seeing if I can feel any side muscles or swelling or heat or, you know, whatever might cause trouble in the day. And then any, by the time we've done all that, then the horses start to get turned back out, hopefully by 3, 3.30. And sort of afternoon chores start cleaning stores, hay, feed, changing blankets, <laughs> cleaning chat, making more feed. <laughs> and then hopefully, if we're lucky, we'll be done by five. <laughs> but every day is different, so you never know. That sounds like a full day and very much a well-oiled machine. Everything planned out from the feeding to who's riding to having the schedules in the barn. Very efficient. And yeah, it needs to be, to be honest, to get get everything done, you know. Um, and obviously, there's always a spanner that gets thrown in the works, you know, like a horse will arrive that maybe Philip's forgotten to tell me about. And we're like, oh, shoot, we've got to find a stall for it. You know? <laughs> um, or we'll have horses ready for someone to ride. And then Philip will be like, oh, I forgot. I've got lessons. I can't ride this one right now. So 
you know, there's definitely, that's why I say it's, it's very important you, you remain flexible and you can't, you can't just be like, this is how the day is going to go. And, you know, um, that's, that's not the case at all. But I think, you know, everybody within the team knows exactly what the horses need. We actually have a walker. And so, you know, it's very important the horses get on the walker and, and knowing whether they should go on before or after um, is important as well. So um, everybody can look at the book and they know how I like it done. And um, as long as everybody's on board, <laughs> technically it should work efficiently. <laughs> Wasn't that the truth? Flexibility is key with horses, right? You never know. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> they'll teach you that whether you want to learn it or not. <laughs> well, is there a common myth that people might have about what it is that you do? And can we bust it? <laughs> you know, the one I hear all the you sort of when I talk to people um, about my job, they're like, oh, my God, it's so glamorous. <laughs> and I always sort of have to laugh in their face a little bit, unfortunately, because I'm like, yeah, if you saw me, <laughs> you know, out, out there with mud up to my knees and, you know, <laughs> you know, my hair in a mess underneath my woolly hat that has five layers on. Um, and I think that's, to me, that's the big one, you know, like, it's, yes, I'm extremely fortunate to do the job that I love and I'm very passionate about. Um, but definitely being glamorous is not part of it. <laughs> you know, we have we have long hours. Uh, definitely shows you get very little sleep. We'll be at shows and you won't shower for days, or you might shower and there's like little dribble of water coming out. And you just <laughs> all you want is like to stand under one of those like really high pressure showers. <laughs> but um, you know, so I think to me that would be the the biggest one that I would like to say. Yeah, not glamorous. <laughs> It's a good thing you love what you do, and boy, it sure makes it worth it at the end of the day. But I can I can picture a few of those scenarios. <laughs> What's a typical day when you're on the road? So when you're out at shows and you're they're traveling and you're traveling, what does that process look like? Yeah, so obviously, you know, we have the option. It, it could be a local show, um, in which case we will be traveling it traveling to the show early in the morning. Um, we typically, if a show's within two and a half hours, we will just drive back and forth from the show. Um, anything over that, and um, if there's a, if it's an overnight, we will go and go the night before and set up stalls and at the show. Um, so that makes it a little bit different. You know, most of the time, even if we're if we're traveling to the show, we're always leaving early because we want to get the horses there settled in, so they can have a break before Philip likes to ride them. The day they get there as well to just show them around the grounds and um, settle them in a bit you know we some mornings we might be on the road by three o'clock and other mornings we might not be on the road till six o'clock you know it just obviously it just depends where the shows are and it typically if I would say if I have three horses I go by myself but if there's anything over three horses then I have help and then you know when we're at an overnight show it's all about the timing. The one thing I like about the eventing compared to light hunter jumpers is at least you have a physical time. You know exactly when your horse has to be at the ring side, which I really appreciate. So, you know, and again, obviously how hectic a day is depends on how many horses Philip is riding. So, you know, I know at Morven this year, or yeah, Morven this year, we had dressage and show jumping on Friday. And I think Philip got on his first horse at seven. And because we had the two phases, he didn't get off his last horse until 4.30, you know, and he was literally riding a horse all the time through there because wow. um, he had, I think, six horses. So, you know, it really, you know, it creates long days because at the end of it, you know, I still want the horses to go out and graze. They're very used to turnout. So, you know, I, I don't like them being in their stalls. 
just standing for too many hours you know I like to say we keep a routine but obviously that's very difficult depending on when they go in their competition makes sense definitely yeah. well I want to ask a question that's a little off script um, but I was going through your social media and kind of following you and you know learning some things about you but as I was preparing for this and I really want to know what does it take to be a world-class groom? I mean, that's even your, your handle on Instagram is world-class grooming. And so what does that mean to you? I love that. <laughs> uh, the world-class grooming is, is actually our business name. It comes from our book. We struggled big time when we were writing the grooming book. We had no idea what else to call it. <laughs> um, and and that's, what, that's what we came up with. So, you know, that, that's, where it, that's where it came from. But I mean, the idea is, you know, we teach these clinics and we feel very strongly that there is a lack of horsemanship coming up through um, the younger years, you know, the younger people, basically. And our mission is to go out there and teach people that, you know, it's not about the riding. It's actually about the groundwork. And unless you have good groundwork, you don't have a horse at the end of the day to compete. Um, so, you know, you need to have the knowledge on the ground as well as uh, you know when you're on your horse become a top groom I mean that's I, I say you just you don't <laughs> it's taken me years to get here yeah but being someone that I mean you truly love the horse like you want the best for that horse mm-hmm. um and you keep an open mind you want to learn what makes him tick what what can I do on the ground that is going to produce his best results Unfortunately, a lot of people do hear the world-class grooming when it comes to our business, and they're like, oh, brushing a horse, and it's like, a little bit more than that. (laughs) Definitely. Well, that's Um, where your hashtag comes in, right? Hashtag beyond brushing, and everything you just said is so much more than just brushing. Yes, we're finding to market ourselves is difficult with with that phrase, because that's why we brought up the hashtag, because people... The amount of clinics we do and they're like oh my god you didn't realize it was like yeah <laughs> you know uh, even if you just have one horse there's so much you should be willing and open to learning you know and even though I've been with horses all my life like I will never ever stop learning um, and that's something pe- I don't think people realize you know they're like oh you've been doing it so long you know everything it's like nope <laughs> I know about as much as my little fingernail <laughs> I love that perspective. Mm. Well, and everything you've just sort of summarized for us, you know, about what it is that you do. I mean, yes, there is brushing and braiding and all those things involved, but it's so much more than that. I mean, you know, every muscle of those horses and, you know, whether they're having a good day or not, or whether they need something changed in their routine or not. I mean, it's so much more than that. So thank you for putting it so concisely. I, I just, I really appreciate that. Well, let's talk more about your education and your experience. Um, what led you here? I mean, what was your journey like? Obviously, I'm originally from England. <laughs> I don't know if that comes across or not. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was brought up on a farm. Um, my, both my parents rode. My dad was actually a master of foxhounds. I was on a horse probably in my mum's womb. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, and my mum and dad got a Shetland pony for me and my sister when I was like maybe three. Luckily for me, uh, my sister gave up riding pretty quick after she got fucked up a couple of times. So <laughs> that led the way. Yeah, that led the way um, for me. I basically, I'm, I'm definitely dad, daddy's little girl, and me and him are very close and have a big bond over the animals in general. Um, but horses was one thing he always pushed me towards, and um, I came up through the pony club. 
Um, I took my B test and um, I actually did a lot of show jumping as well as fox hunting um, in England. And they just always instilled in me the, my work ethic. I'll always, if I didn't do the work on the ground, then I didn't get to go to the show. You know, if I didn't make the money to pay for the show, then I didn't go to the show. <laughs> And they were obviously always there behind me and, you know, they wanted me to do well. But at the same time, it was like it had to be me doing that work, you know. And I think I've got me through to this stage in my career now as well. And um, I had amazing mentors. I did go to university in Wales and I got a Bachelor of Science degree in agriculture. And the idea was that I was going to keep the horses as a you know fun thing and have my own horse and go to peach and everything and then I was going to have the real job to pay for it <laughs> sure. um and yeah yeah that was the idea so <laughs> I struggled at school I'm very much a hands-on I'm not an academic person at all <laughs> you know I got my degree and then I was like I just want to go away for a year I've never left England I'm like I just I, I'm done with school I'm done with my education <laughs> get me out of here and um, I couldn't afford to like just up and leave and travel the world or anything. So I found agency that got visas for you to work in the United States and they connected you with horse people. I basically wrote down and said, oh, I want to go to an eventing barn. And um, they connected me with Adrian Iorio in Massachusetts, um, at Appenor Farm. And I went off in 1998 <laughs> and um, haven't, you know, looked back basically. It's all about where you land. I was extremely lucky. They were amazing. They kept, you know, they're basically my second family. And she had a riding school as well as a boarding barn. And um, she was starting, she had two eventers, but after seven years when I finished with her, she had a string of 12 eventers. Um, So I sort of went through, I taught at her place. You know, she wanted me to teach, which was good. I hated teaching, but she made me do it. (laughs) You know, like then I was sort of the barn manager and with the borders as well so I had to deal with them so that was good um but then when she started to pull in the eventers more you know I sort of segued off into just being her groom she, I was still riding at that stage I was she was letting me compete she let me she had a couple of advanced horses that retired and she let me run them prelim so you know I was forever grateful for that and then in 2002 she um, went over to Blenheim and I flew the horse out of Toronto and went to Blenheim Wow. And um, that's in Oxford in England. And um, basically that was the trip that really turned me into saying, well, this, this is something I want to do. Like, I want to go to the top of the sport and I want to fly with these horses. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to go to the World Games. And I certainly knew I wasn't getting there riding. <laughs> sure. um, so that was a sort of at that stage. That was when I had my mind on sort of expanding the horizons and then a couple of years later the job opened up with Philip and it was sort of a no-brainer to be honest. <laughs> I was like well if I'm going to go to all these he would be the one to go with you know and obviously there I've never looked back um, from that really and then that has just opened up doors you know being at Phillips has just opened up so many doors obviously 2015 um, we, we put out the book World Class Grooming myself and Cat Hill which then led on to become associated with Andis and becoming an Andis educator, which really links in, you know, their philosophy links in so well with our mission of wanting to educate people in, you know, why do we clip? How do you clip? 
what sort of clip do you want? You know, why should you clip? Sure. <laughs> um, how do you take care of the horses after you clip? Just feel so fortunate to have, um, you know, made that connection and looking forward to continuing that one on for sure. Absolutely. What is Andis? Just give people an idea of, give a little background of, of what Andis is and does. So Andis is probably one of the biggest uh, clipper manufacturers worldwide, I'm going to say. So this is how naive I was about this. Like I, you know, I've always used, um, well, okay, originally started off with the huge clippers that used to weigh like 50 pounds. And if you gave me a set of them now, I, would, I wouldn't even be able to clip a horse. Um, and I can remember distinctly um, when I came to America um, and someone gave me the AGC2 clippers to clip a horse. I was like, what are these? And basically never looked back and was always like, oh my God, this is what I need. <laughs> Until I went to the summit, um, a couple of years ago in 2017, I didn't even think about how big they were in the pet world or in the barber beauty shop. <laughs> sure. Like, honestly, I just thought it was horses, you know? Yeah. And then we went to the summit and I'm like, oh, we're like, you know, <laughs> the barber shop is huge. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I mean, you want a clipper for whatever you want to do and they're the company to go for. What I love is that you know, you can go back to the company, you can call up and be like, hey, what do I need? If you're someone that doesn't know exactly what you're looking for and what clipper you want for the job you need to do, you know, you can call them and there's someone on the other end to say, hey, well, you need to try this. And then, you know, just their their standard of, you know, like say the blades last forever. And um, just a great, great company. So I'm thrilled that we are working with them. So, so an Andes educator is, um, as an Andes educator, whenever I go to clinic or I might go to um, the equine affair, um, there's multiple equine affairs around the nation. And as an educator, you might go and give demonstrations. And um, basically, you know, when I go to these clinics, I'm always saying, you know, we do a big section on clipping horses. And, um, you know, we go from the very start of like how we're going to clip, why we're going to clip, teaching people how to safely clip. You know, it's not always as easy as you might think. Um, many horses are, are very nervous about it. And how do we introduce clipping to those, you know, with these types of horses? You know, we will always, we're trying to educate people on, you know, why you might choose one clip versus another. What, again, you know, people are always asking me, you know, what clipper would you use for this situation? Do I need, you know, if you're in Massachusetts and you don't do much riding through the winter, you're going to need a different type of clipper than maybe I do when I have to clip, you know, 30 horses three times, four times, five times a year. <laughs> um, I sort of feel as an educator, you are literally educating um, the people on every anything involved with clipping, clipping a horse, and um, whether it's how to take care of the clippers or, you know, working with, like say, working with the nervous horse. Um, how, what are we clipping if they have skin irritation or skin funk? Why, you know, and then, you know, on the other side of that, there's what's getting very popular now is that there are people out there that like literally clip amazing patterns into their horses. I, I am not one of those that can teach you to do that because I have zero talent for it. But um, the people that do do that and do that for Andrus are absolutely unbelievable. All right. Is there anything else um, for your education, your experience or your journey that you want to touch on? Yeah, I just think it's very important 
I've been so lucky, you know, working with Philip, like the amount of professionals coming in and it's not necessarily the riders, it's, it's the veterinaries, it's the farriers, it's, you know, your physical therapist, like, and obviously going through the team experience, you know, several times, really, really, that has widened even more so opened my mind of um, how we can really help these horses even more. And, you know, like I say, I, you know, I, I keep reiterating, but you can never, ever stop learning. And I, there, there was a year I actually thought I was done grooming and I wanted to slow down. And I was like, oh, God, I can't keep going. And I felt a little bit burnt out. And I went and I worked with someone else um, with fewer horses. And I actually like I didn't realize how much I needed to be surrounded by those other professionals and how much I was actually learning from them. And um, expanding my own knowledge you know and so I actually ended up coming back to Philip so, <laughs> but you know obviously the horses were the horses brought me back but um, I definitely you know for that one I was out for a year with someone else and that one year I was like God, I didn't, you know I'd only see the farrier maybe you know once a month you know and I'd only see the vet you know every six weeks if we were lucky you know so to speak but you know I missed I was like no I'm not um, I want to keep learning, like, and it's, it's working with those people every day, you know, every week that expands my knowledge. So Always learning. Well, was it obvious yeah. to you that this is where you'd end up? Did you have any idea looking back over your journey that you were going to be here? My dad would probably tell you absolutely there was no way I wasn't working with horses. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can honestly say, you know, before I came over the state, I, you know, I really... I was like, no, I, you know, I was definitely heading down the path. Like, I definitely wanted to, you know, just keep riding. And, you know, that was, you know, I never foresaw, foresaw myself being you know, a head girl everywhere. Um, so it really wasn't until the States and, you know, having gone through those years of Adrian that I started to figure out, you know, that I was g- good with the horses, basically, on the ground. You know, again, I, I sort of joke that my dad hates me saying this, but I... I used to always win the turnout awards at Pony Club. I never won the riding awards. <laughs> I don't know if that was probably a sign that I should have taken, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I definitely think, you know, it wasn't until I, I came over here that I, I saw myself, you know, that I could go and be a professional groom. Definitely the world-class grooming, you know, what has come out of the book, you know, writing a book and getting a business, you know, having my own business with, with a friend like that. I never ever foresaw doing any of that. <laughs> so, well, it seems um, to be working out uh, quite well for you, I would say. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, we're definitely. I actually just saw. Um, I was at the eventing convention, and we saw our public uh, publishers, and you know, it's obviously been out four years, and they they've just gone into third print of the book, which you know they were extremely happy with, and we didn't, you know, they weren't. They say that's a good thing. Normally a book comes out and does amazing well and then just like trickles off. But she says we've had a steady flow every year. So to go into third print is a really quite a big deal apparently. Very cool. Can you talk a little bit more about your book? Like who is it for? Just tell us more about it. Yeah. I mean, anybody that wants to improve their horse management and it doesn't matter what level, whether you're a beginner novice, up through um, an advanced rider, adult amateur, it has amazing pictures, um, amazing photos. So um, it, it, it's a very step-by-step picture, with, uh, you know, literally a step-by-step book. And we go right from, you know, bringing a horse in from the paddock <laughs> um, through to turning out at a five-star competition. And 
also including the pure dressage disciplines and pure hunter jumper discipline. Um, so it doesn't have to be, and you know, you don't have to be an inventor to buy it. If you're just someone that, you know, wants to learn different ways of braiding, or you haven't wrapped a horse yet, and you don't really know why you wrap a horse or what you can use under a wrap, you know, this book really goes into detail about all that. So basically, any any, any horse fan, it's it's the book for you. Perfect. I feel like writing a book is one of those lofty goals that you put, you know, on like your, your high school senior to-do list, right? Like, here's my life goals that I'm going to do. And you've done it. So <laughs> check mark. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. That's so cool. <laughs> Be sure to tune in for part two of our conversation with Emma Ford, where we will hear more stories and share more laughs with Emma in episode eight. Thanks for riding along. Know someone that would be great to interview? Have questions you'd like answered on the podcast? Send me an email at beyondthesaddlepodcast at gmail.com or join the conversation on social media. You can connect with us and learn more about the Beyond the Saddle podcast by following us on Facebook and Instagram at at Beyond the Saddle podcast. Find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Beyond the Saddle is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network.